I'm the anti-empire guy. And more power to it if people want to go do that, to build a business empire, build a real estate empire. I'm the anti-empire guy. What I want is full financial autonomy, geographical autonomy. I want to be the best dad possible, the best husband possible, and live life on our terms. I'll never forget that day when I asked myself the question, is this it? Is this all there is to strive for in life? That day, I set out on a journey to find more. Now, I am sitting down with the most fulfilled to teach us the tools and tips they use to get there so we can do it faster. Think different, earn different, live fulfilled. This is Contrarian Cashflow. Welcome back. Super excited. This afternoon, we've got Spence Hillegas with us. Spence, what's going on, my man? Hey, John. Super excited. Not only do I love the name of your show, I subscribe to the ethos. Contrarian all the way, man. Excited to be here. Well, that was one of the reasons I had to have you on. I've heard you in a couple interviews before and you've dropped the C-bomb. So, uh, you know, had to have you in to join the crew. So Spence, for those that don't know, is a former technology leader for a few, quite a few software companies in Silicon Valley. He and his wife, Jennifer Morimoto, are co-founders of Madison Investing. And most importantly, he's a loving father of two. So Spence, what do you got working on right now? Yeah, you know, so these days, really just wearing all the wonderful hats that come along with being a full-time real estate investor um, and also being a dad and and a husband. And so um, these days are on Madison Investing. You know, we focus um, primarily on storage facilities as well as multifamily. And so Really, it's, it's a passive investing program for LPs. And what we do is we, we find excellent sponsors and we vet them slowly, deliberately. And then we help eventually, once we've invested in them ourselves, share those deals with our passive investing program as well so that other folks can co-invest with us. And so that, that's what we do. We'd like to think we're really good at it. Um, and as, as you know, John, um, we're working on quite a few things right now. It's, it's almost as if the summer deal flow dry up which is what at least we experienced in our front, has stopped. And um, even though we are in the middle of a black swan event globally, and the economy is kind of a K-shaped recovery, like we're experiencing a lot of really, really strong uh, deal flow and growth right now. So exciting times. Yeah. Yeah. Exciting times. Obviously, a lot of challenge going on in the world, but from a real estate perspective, things have remained fairly buoyant overall. So kind of down the contrarian path too, I wanted to congratulate you real quick, uh, recently getting your broker dealer license. So within the sponsor and syndication community, that's pretty unique. So congratulations, man. Yeah. Thank you so much. I mean, I haven't uh, been that studious since college, but doing 3000 practice uh, (laughs) practice questions and taking three exams in 45 days was not exactly enjoyable per se, but I'm, I'm very thankful to have it behind me. And I'm very proud uh, of how we, how we operate as a business now. Yeah, man, absolutely. Well, so let's dive into your journey a little bit. I know you had some, some scenarios uh, from childhood that left a lot of memories kind of and in, in thoughts around money and family and kind of what's most important for you in life. So if you can kind of delve into the journey um, from a young age, definitely love to start from there. Yeah. And thanks for the opportunity to share it. You know, so Anyone who's kind of talked to me a bit about uh, investment thesis and just my take on, on wealth building these days, they've probably heard me use the phrase of, I believe wholeheartedly in the notion of financial offense and financial defense. And, and that ethos comes from a few experiences when I was growing up. So my dad was a real estate broker, residential broker, one of the top ones in the country back in the 90s. And it was in the Bay Area, California, where I still live now. And he pulled me into that business. You know, I mean, at the age of six, I guess I can technically say that I joined the real estate business. You know, it wasn't meaningful until I was a teenager, though. 
um, he had me working open houses and I was glad handing affluent buyers, you know, and, and then showing them like basically mansions. And, and in hindsight, I was like, man, I, got, I learned a lot, but I really, really hated it. And I, I did not want to be there. Right. I mean, I, I, it was a great educational experience in hindsight. I watched my dad kick butt as an entrepreneur and grow this business to very high, high heights. And I mean, the hard part of that, John, is like telling the story is tough because on the other side of that, I also watched our family and his business go through extraordinarily tough times. And so, you know, he, he built it up and he was a broker. So all that income was active. I mean, just like a flipper or, you know, a wholesaler, a broker, they earn their income by actively working. So as a result, when he stopped, that income stopped flowing. And, you know, in the, the Robert Kiyosaki uh, example from Rich Dad, Poor Dad that he'll use, which always sticks with me to this day, is that you can build a pipeline of wealth that constantly flows, even if you're sleeping, or you can actually use that figurative bucket and use an active role, like a W-2 job, like most people in the world might have, dump that income on the table and go back to work and still have it come in. So like, that's what my dad was doing. Unfortunately, like my younger brother was diagnosed with uh, you know, terminal cancer when he was a teenager. He passed away after a beautiful, brief life. My parents got divorced and, and just a bunch of stuff snowballed very badly for, for like a decade. And we call that the dark decade in our family. And um, I think that I bring all this stuff up because that left a lasting impression on me. Uh, and and it, it really helps cement this notion of like, you know, I was a teenager when something that early, early phase of that stuff happened. I was in college when the, when the latter stage of that happened, but it stuck with me and it stuck with me that like, what could I have done differently? You know, if I was in my dad's shoes, cause now I, as you mentioned, I have two young kids, I got a three-year-old and a six-year-old and I, I love being a dad. Um, like how can I, as a father now be more proactive and not rely on active income exclusively? How can I go to play that financial offense, play that financial defense and, and, and really just d deliver, you know, and, and build a moat around our family that allows us to have to thrive. So that was the journey that he went through. Um, and these days now we help other people invest in the same kinds of projects that we use for investing in it for our own wealth. I really appreciate you sharing that. And I mean, I just think I love the perspective of the financial offense and the financial defense. And I think that's one thing that people struggle with sometimes high income earners, especially they just think they're, I wouldn't say bulletproof, but they think they're in a very good spot, right? You know, Hey, I'm making a lot of money. So yeah, you know, I'm not living, I'm living, you know, a good amount below my means and I'm able to cover my expenses by quite a bit. And so I'm in a good spot, but the decoupling of that effort from the money is the part that many people struggle with because as soon as that job ends or as soon as something as coronavirus happens, you know, like you said, a black swan event it causes, you know, major damage and huge challenges in energy and airlines. A previous guest was talking about Delta or airlines in particular used to be, you know, last year were very strong credit tenants, debt trading at par. And now, you know, it's very risky to have uh, an airline or anything hospitality as a tenant. You'd be very concerned at this point in time. And so I just think that's such an important perspective. So can you kind of delineate financial offense versus financial, financial defense in, from your perspective? Yeah, I'm so pumped to go there. Yeah, so I think um, let's start with like like the defense stuff first. Maybe you know I think keeping what you earn is so critical. And you and I were chatting a little bit about this before we kicked off uh, the, the podcast today. I used to just look at my at my um, you know my pay stubs, and because uh, I was in you know pretty highly compensated uh, leadership roles. You know I was in operations groups, uh, leading operations and building operations groups, and, and then in sales leadership roles. So heavily taxed stuff. And I really didn't understand that 
the way that my income, all that hard-earned income was taxed was based upon the type of work that I did um, and, and my tax status. And so taxes are the one of the biggest financial defense things that I could possibly bring up. And so there's other things that you could do. And it's very eye-opening. Once I went down that rabbit hole over the, over the recent years and just said, there's a different way, man. There, that there's just a different way to think about this stuff and that you can actually start to impact based on your choices the way that you're taxed. I mean, even so far as like looking at taxes, I, th- I think the way that uh, Tom Wheelwright refers to this is like taxes are not an oppressive thing inherently. They are actually incentives as the government designs them to drive people to certain behavior. Now, I think there's probably some truth somewhere in there uh, in the middle, but, but, but truth be told, man, that's very different than the way I used to think about them. I thought that my paycheck came in and I just had to give away half. And that's how that goes. So financial defense, that's got to be the first big comment on it. The other one is just saying, you know, in, in I'm a big advocate of, I, I don't necessarily believe in the fire movement. I think that like, it's perfectly fine. I love that people are achieving financial independence. Fires, of course, stands for financially independent, retiring early. Um, usually that comes along with a hardcore frugality play. I am a big advocate for, for, for frugality, but I'm not the guy who like doesn't buy fun stuff. Like you better believe like I don't sit there and nitpick our budget. I just don't. And I don't want to have to live that way. What I, what I am going to advocate for though, is that people are at least thoughtful on, on how they spend and they don't buy the big ticket items. They don't overstretch their lifestyle. Example would be, I'll give you some, some real tangible big ones. We live in the Bay Area. We have a house. Um, it's the first house we bought. We've been living here now for coming up on eight years. And it's modest. You know, it's big enough for us. It's a Bay Area household. And so it's 100 years old worth. I mean, I don't want to, you know, now it's worth a million plus bucks, which is mind blowing in the Bay Area for a 1200 square foot house. But like, we haven't upgraded. You know, we haven't, we've d- decided not to upgrade because we have what we need. And when people are doing that kind of planning and thinking, oh, I want to upgrade because that's what people do at this stage of life. Or I want to buy a bigger house because I saw that person down the street has that car and in that parked in that driveway and I want to get a third car. You know, just those decisions are, are what I consider very firmly financial defense um, and, and just making smarter decisions with some sense of frugality. Like my 11-year-old Audi A4, it's perfectly fine. It still gets us from A to B. We do. I would love to buy a Tesla at some point, but you know that might, might not be in the cards for a little bit, just because we don't need it yet. You know, so so that, that's financial defense. I think on the financial offense, thinking about the fact that you know, take a dollar, drop it in an FDIC insured savings account, and that is going to ultimately get chipped away at by inflation over time, and the money is going to lose its value. That's just the sad truth of it. Now, if you actually want to go take on a little bit more risk, you can actually go invest. And there's just a ton of wonderful ways to do that. And unfortunately, financial offense for most people doesn't mean doing anything besides just working your day job. And so you're doing your day job. Maybe you're dropping a bunch of money into your 401k and thinking that you are set. I did that. I did that for a decade plus. And I was so proud of my 401k. And I'm, I'm thankful that I had it. Um, but man, if I could go back, I would not be doing more than the company match. I, I would be using that excess, dropping it into stuff that would actually benefit our lifestyle now, because that's what it's all about. You know, I'm not the guy that wants to build an empire. I'm the anti-empire guy. I need more power to it if people want to go do that, to build a business empire, build a real estate empire. I'm the anti-empire guy. What I want is full financial autonomy, geographical autonomy, 
want to be the best dad possible, the best husband possible and live life on our terms. And so sorry for the soapbox, but you got me going on a topic that I get really fired up about. Yeah, no, I I appreciate that. I appreciate you sharing that. And I love those descriptions. And I mean, just regardless of if you put your money into a savings account or into an investment, whatever it may be, there's risk, right? There's inherent risk, what you do, taking action or inaction. There's risk on both sides, in my opinion, at least taking action, you have some control of that risk versus inaction can't really control the Fed, how much money they're going to print or you know the cost of items and inflation, how that's going to eat away at the purchasing power of those dollars. So, right. well, and another thing we'll, we'll touch upon, because I want to get into your technology leadership background, of course, obviously, but one thing you talked about was just the keeping up with the Joneses kind of, and I know you'll allude to this a little bit later on, but as your income increases, it's very hard not to have your quality of life and standard of living increase as well. And I think that's what some people struggle with, especially if they are able to attain a high income at a young age. Like, well, I've got the rest of my life. Okay, yeah, so I want to buy a nice car. So I want to live in a country club neighborhood. And then all of a sudden, 10, 15 years later, they're doing the same thing, right? And, And maybe their income is increased, maybe it hasn't. But I just think that that's so important is you really need to find, and back to what I respect about you so much is the intentionality behind your actions and looking at what really matters to you deep down. And I think we're in the same vein in a lot of aspects, time freedom and time to spend with my family. And uh, well, I'm in North Carolina, so geographic freedom isn't too terrible. We got the mountains and the, and the water not too far away. So, and it's not, the cost of living is, is by no means the Bay Area. Uh, but I think those are the things that are important to me, having the time to spend with those that I love and, and having the means to, to do what I want, you know, within reason. And then the last thing before I want you to jump in your, your background from the technology perspective is it's not what you make, it's what you keep. And so I think a lot of people see a high income and they say, wow, that's, that's great. That's a lot, but there's a lot of challenges and there's a lot of negatives from a tax perspective implications that if you've got children, if you have a family, you're not getting a lot of those deductions that, you know, that a lot of other folks are getting. So that's just one thing to think about, even though you're earning a high income, how much are you actually getting to keep? And I think that's a great point around the defense. It's not what you make, it's what you keep. But let's, let's jump into your technology leadership. So, I mean, so you said, you know, you were grown up around real estate, grew up around real estate, but now, you know, later on in life, you jumped into the technology realm. So can you give us a little bit of an idea of how you got in that vein and, and what that experience was like? Yeah, I appreciate the chance to talk about it. You know, so, so I think in real estate in the Bay Area compared to tech, it's just not as a, as cool of a thing to tell your friends that you do. And so as a result, fresh out of college, I, I was like living at home and I was just like, hey, I'm going to go work for a tech company and see how it goes. And you know, so I applied, felt very fortunate to get the job. And uh, that was the launch pad to go to, you know, 13 years of career. And so I didn't necessarily plan on working exclusively for companies that are in like fintech um, or finance tech companies. You know, like, like basically I worked for Intuit for five years, company that has TurboTax and QuickBooks, which most people know those names at least. And then I went to a bunch of competitors for them um, over a course of years. And, and man, as a guy who wasn't necessarily that interested in finance and accounting to go to all these companies that solve these really dry sounding problems and like, you know, engaging with CPAs and bookkeepers and stuff with the teams that I manage and, and, and they're, they're engaging with these firms. That was a really educational experience, man. Like understanding the books and like really getting an education that I didn't quite get in college because I was a little distracted at the time, as you can imagine. Um, that was great. And so I was thrust in like a formative moment for me, John, just to mention, because I think it's helpful for people to understand. Like 
I was thrust into a senior leadership gig faster than I probably should have been. And I was 26, I think, at the time, and I was managing a team of 200 people. Um, and it's just a lot of responsibility. And, and, and I think that in hindsight, man, I was like way in over my skis at the time. And, but going through it, you just take your hits. You know, you get kicked in the teeth figuratively. You have mentors su- supporting you and surrounding you and, and, and giving you that really, really direct, in some cases, harsh feedback. And so you go throughout that journey. I'm so thankful for it. And then I went to a bunch of smaller companies, progressively smaller. Um, I wanted to go earlier. I wanted to be able to take on more work that was way outside my comfort zone. I, there was points where I literally walked away from, um, I gave up 40% of my cash compensation to go to a company that was the earliest stage I'd ever been at. And there was a component of decision that went into that that was based upon the equity that could be earned, You know, like having a big Google or Facebook exit, which is like the... The, the secret uh, wealth plan that ever, that a lot of people in Silicon Valley subscribe to, but they don't want to necessarily say it out loud because they want to join that early company and hopefully get some, some of that, that equity when the company goes public. But very few people actually experience the quote unquote startup lottery winning. Um, but that's what I did is I went to an early stage company, but I did it more so for growth. And that is totally, <laughs> that is actually what happened. Like I gave up a big chunk of cash Right after I got a promotion at this other company, went to a smaller company, took a hit on my compensation in order to go and learn at the most aggressive pace and be outclassed for a year by being surrounded by people that were more, that were just better than I was. And by the, after a year of that, I was like, wow, I can keep up with these people now. Wow. I can actually go run faster than some of them now. So like that, that was the journey that I went through and eventually found my way into lending home which was a the big, now the biggest fix and flip lender in the country in residential. And so I was tasked with industry jumping uh, again and becoming a licensed loan originator just so I could go and build a team of licensed loan originators in residential. And, and uh, we, end, we started off doing 150 loans per month when I got there. And by the time I left, we were doing 600 loans per month. And so like 600 transactions per month is, is a pretty hefty load for any, any lender. And I learned a lot about underwriting. I learned a lot about making decisioning criteria, frameworking, all that stuff. So it was, yeah, it was formative. I wouldn't be here doing the, the full-time real estate investor thing if I hadn't gone through lending home. And I'm deeply grateful for that experience, but I didn't want to become a flipper. You know, Although all my co- colleagues wanted me to go become a flipper because a lot of them were because we're a flip lender. And I was like, nope. I mean, the, the, that's the same thing that I heard from my dad's experience growing up was like, a flip is a one-time income event and I can barely swing a hammer, John. So I, I, I didn't want that either. <laughs> so that's why I went for multifamily and went for bigger stuff. No, I, I appreciate that. Well, so one thing I wanted you to kind of talk through is the the four four steps or four factors of working at a tech company in Silicon Valley, just to kind of get a pr- perspective for the audience. So I know you've talked about it before, but what are kind of those four factors or four steps in working for a tech company and the lifestyle, and like you said, kind of that liquidity event or the exit event. For me, there's this notion of these like these like limiting factors that I that's the construct with which I approach how to allocate all of my time and like and how to be effective. And I, I really don't think it would have been possible to build what started as like a side hustle for years at a time to build that into something that was big enough and meaningful enough, both income wise as well as like business wise to eventually build it into the full hustle. Every, I mean, it, it, that's kind of the dream, right? It's like you build a side hustle and it goes to the full hustle, becomes the hustle. Like, and you eventually leave, leave your day job. So the way I think about that 
and I didn't come up with this term. I mean, like a mentor of mine was the one who told me about this term originally, but it's called limb facts and like limiting factors. And you have time, you have uh, capital and you have expertise. Time, pretty straightforward. Um, you know, you only have so many hours in the day, but we all have the same amount. You have capital and then capital is actually a very stretched definition within this very nerdy framework. It just simply means it's like your health, your wealth, in your, your relationships, your, your, your human, your human capital and the relationships you can lean on because all of these things need, need to be considered when you're trying to figure out where do you put your time and, and, and your effort and your expertise? Cause you might not have the expertise that you need. So I thought about the, that framework and really what it got down to, man, was like, I mapped out, I was like, I audited my calendar. And I only had 10 hours per week while working full time in the tech world to build a real estate business on the side and nights and weekends without compromising how well I was doing in my day job. Cause I was still going to show up well, you know, like I had, I had an obligation to my employer. I'm never going to mail it in totally, but that was a tricky one, man. It, it really was tough to, uh, to find the motivation and then also lean on the expertise of others. I mean, I've used four separate coaching programs to speak to the expertise comment for, for a second. Like I, I, I strongly believe in using coaching programs the right way. They're not all created equal. You know, you really have to be selective in terms of, of who you decide to work with and, and where you spend your money, but you got to use them because it's an accelerant. And like, I mean, I, I knew residential investing well enough by the time I went commercial and built medicine investing, but I, man, the coaching stuff is, is vitally important. So I, I don't know if that in any way answered your question, but um, hopefully, hopefully it hits on some of it. <laughs> Yeah. And, and the coaching is something that I struggled with for such a long time, uh, just because I feel like I'm motivated. I'm, you know, successful in, inherently, at least in my opinion. And, uh, and so that was one thing, just spending money on a coaching program or mentorship was something that just, it was hard for me to get my head wrapped around. Right. And so I was very fortunate to just, you know, kind of get thrust into a few relationships that ended up panning out and they've been successful. And I think that's one thing that people just need to be conscious of is make sure to do your due diligence. A lot of these coaching, you know, mentors, programs, you know, they're, they're a lot of marketing and just make sure that what the outcome you're expecting to get is aligned with what the expertise of that program is. And the biggest challenge I see people running into is they can't define what outcome they want. So that would be my biggest point initially is to go in and define what your expectations of that program are pretty down to, you know, the nuts and bolts of, Hey, this is what I'd like to know coming out of this program. Not just, Hey, I want to get richer. I want to be more successful. And I think that's what these programs, a lot of people go in and they don't have a clear definition of what they think success will look like coming out. So that would be my biggest point is I'm, I'm a strong believer as well now in, in coaching and mentorship, but the one thing is you need to be very direct and clear in terms of what your expected results are to make sure that it's the most successful that it can be. Yeah, that's so on point, Sean. Can I comment on that for one sec? Of course. So I think that right now there's more coaching programs in the world than there's ever been before. And maybe then, maybe then, uh, maybe then mentees. <laughs> there may be more coaching programs than mentees. <laughs> You're not wrong. You know, it's it, it, you go on LinkedIn, you go on Facebook, and it's just it's overwhelming, right? And I think what's the thing that I find a little disconcerting, and this is not a, a cross the board condemnation of coaching programs. That is not the point of this comment I'm about to make. But I will say that before you pay money to a person who's going to be educating you, take the time to ensure they actually have done the thing they're about to educate you on. And 
it sounds very simple, but I would argue most people who are in coaching roles charging actual money to get paid for it don't have that experience. And it's easy to spot. I mean, even on LinkedIn, I know John, you and I originally connected that way and, and now we've built a friendship out of it, which is awesome. And like, I look at like LinkedIn and I get pinged every day by people saying, hey, I'd love to coach you on LinkedIn. And I don't claim to be great at it. I, I'll just say that I go to their profile. They have like one like on the recent post. No one has really found them yet. And they're about to charge me money to teach me how to use LinkedIn, you know? And so I'm using a very nascent example and a, a very vanilla example, but like same thing applies to real estate. Same thing applies to entrepreneurship. Same thing applies to um, to life by design, you know, I mean, all, all, all the above. So like, just make sure that you do your diligence and like, it's okay to ask tough questions. I hope you're not spending money on that kind of stuff before you actually, actually ask them. Like, but to your point on goals, quick aside here, I would just say that coaching programs are only as valuable as they are invested in with the hustle. Like, like you got to work your butt off to make them worth their while. Like they're to exactly your point, John, a, a coaching program is not a, like a, out of the box business. I mean, it, it, it's, it gives you the tools to do better. Um, so if you're already doing great, it's an accelerant. If you're looking for it to get all the work done for you and make it easy, that ain't what, what you're going to get. <laughs> so it's, it's just different. Yeah. And that's, and that's the biggest concern I see out there with folks getting into these programs. I mean, I've heard of group masterminds charging $12,000 a year, and I'm just curious if they're getting commensurate value from that. Not saying they're not getting something from it, but was that their expectation? To me, that's a lot of money to be in a group setting, to be getting some knowledge that could they have gotten from a book or could they have built a relationship with a sponsor or found another way to, to get that education at a much better cost and potentially, most importantly, a better level of education and actual action versus, you know, hey, here's a group of people that were in this group together. How many of those people in that group are actually doing the actions that you want to be a part of? And, and to your point, you know, just like everything, you know, make sure you're doing your proper due diligence and be very clear with what, what the expected outcome you want to have happen. So, um, so, I mean, you've got this great career, man. Like, I mean, you know, you're doing well, you're in the Bay area, you know, you, like you said, you're living the Silicon Valley life, right? You're at the software startup, uh, well, you know, a software and, and, uh, and lending startup. Um, and so, so why switch? I mean, why not just right off into the sunset and say, man, life is good. Uh, I've got a beautiful family. You know, this is, this is enough for me. Yeah. Gosh, ain't that the question? You know, the, and, and that is kind of the question that I go in pretty deep on. And again, I, I receive questions about from our new investors that join our passive investing program every single week, because most of our investors that work with us are full-time employees. Oftentimes, there are dual-income families that live in the Bay Area and they work for big tech. You know, like a bunch of folks that work at Facebook and Netflix and Google and all these companies. And so, similar, similar narrative. You know, um, you're making good cash comp and Truth is, like, I am not the person who folks should talk to if they want to hear a message of screw the W, sorry, of, of, of forget the W2 world. You know, I had a really good experience there overall. I learned an immense amount of things. I've built relationships that are lifelong friendships. There was times, though, where, you know, I think, I think this was two companies ago. I was working 80 to 100 hours a week, and that was in the office. Um, I had an infant son. Uh, at the time, our first son, uh, and I was on a path that was pretty destructive, you know, like it was like, wow, cool. I'm part of this something special, but it, it wasn't sustainable for, uh, for, you know, my relationship with, with Jennifer. It wasn't sustainable for, for me being the kind of parent that I wanted to be in life. And so 
that is um, a tough choice that I think any person has to make ultimately is like, okay, what's going to write the ship here and get us on the right course. But also, you know, even if you make great income, how do you go and build a more, we all talk about work-life balance. I mean, really it's more about work-life integration. I think is the, the way you hear it branded these days when done correctly, it's something that I subscribe to. Like, are you working on something that actually gives you enthusiasm versus anxiety constant? And I was ready for a change in that regard. But in addition to that, the wealth plan provided by that lifestyle wasn't good enough. You know, it was like, well, how do I go find a plan that allows me to go and dial back on my hours, but still be able to invest in a plan over time? I'm not going to sit on a beach, by the way. Like, I'm not the guy who's, who wants to get passive income just to sit on my butt all day. Like, I, I'm, I'm not the kind of guy that gets bored, by the way. Like, 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 I like to be able to do plenty of hobbies. I play a bunch of guitar and, and you know, I want to go do stuff, build stuff with my kids and yada, yada. I, I say all that because like, it was just a good time for me, be, me to be able to switch and not only look at all the deals that we look at anyways, like I'm out there looking at multifamily deals and we focus heavily on self-storage facilities now. Like I'm looking at these deals anyways, because I'm curious about it for our own money. And then we realized when a bunch of folks in our network and colleagues were asking, what are you guys investing in? You know, like, like what are you guys, where are you putting your money? And I was like, wait a sec. Well, if we're looking at these deals anyways, and we have a really great process and we're going to make it even better over time. And the market is flooded with, okay, so, so deals that people without this deep sophistication in the space know how to read anyways, but they want to get involved. How can we help address that need? And the people don't typically have eight to 10 hours to go and dig into the in-depth, the pro forma, the PPM, all these different things that, that come into syndication investing. Like, how do we go address that need? And it just made sense. It just, you know, I was already doing real estate during the day, albeit on residential. And, uh, and it just made sense to, to tap that other side of the residential, of the real estate world, uh, in that, that side of my brain and go lent it toward building a commercial business. Well, and I think that's so important for people to look at from a career perspective or from a lifestyle perspective is quitting your W-2 job isn't the end-all be-all. That doesn't necessarily mean you've got this grand freedom and you really have to look at your risk tolerance. And that's what I like about you, Spence, so much is the intentionality, right? So, so many people that would be working 80 to 100 hours a week, they wouldn't have the time to think straight about anything, let alone, you know, hey, is this a destructive path? Is this the lifestyle that I'd like to live for the next 20 years? Well, I mean, geez, you know, at that pace, you know, maybe just 10 more years. But I, I think that's the point is just make sure that you're constantly evaluating where you're at. And if that's heading in the direction where you want to go. And I think that's what's so important for people is to just make sure no, there's no one right way, wrong way, but make sure that the way that you're going is the way that you want to go. And I think that's what's so important is for people to define what's important to them and if they're going the direction that they want to be. So just take that time and understand, do you have the time you want with family? Do you have the amount of means that you want? And how, if you don't, how can you tweak those a little bit to get more in line with what you're wanting to get out of life? Well, so obviously you guys thought up this idea of Madison investing. So both you and Jennifer, I'm super curious. So how do you start a business with a spouse? Uh, you know, many times we even struggle just deciding what's for dinner. Gosh, yeah, that is the question, right? That's the big question. Because um, when people have asked me also, John, like, uh, and I'll, I'll answer the question directly, but to, to mention this briefly, um, when people ask, like, like what's, the, what's the biggest advantage that you guys have uh, over others in the space. And I, I got to say, like, it's working, um, working with a co-founder that is also my spouse. And our decisions that we make now 
are so collaborative and they are so fast, but great in my, in my humble opinion, uh, very biased opinion. And it didn't start easy. We took a solid full weekend. It might've been two weekends. We did these epic planning sessions. They were very business oriented. We were using things like sticky notes and putting them all over the wall. And, and, and it was pretty structured. I think most people would be pretty surprised. It's not like we were sitting on a couch and, and just like having an open freeform dialogue, although that, it did get to that point at some points. But like we were sitting there saying, what is the lifestyle that we want? What, are the, what is the long, like take out the time consideration. Let's just say, what, what do we want? And then we'll apply timetables to it after. So we started there. You know, what kind of parenting, what kind of lifestyle for our kids do we want by the time that they're you know, old enough to, to, to be able to be a little bit more mobile, you know, like whether that's like living abroad, you know, like big questions, you know, like life impacting, life influencing questions. And then we mapped out in just brutal crystal clarity and truth, like what is our financial picture? Um, put that all out on black and white and ink and just said, okay, how do we get from here to here? And put the, the realistic timetables to it on our current path and then put scenarios together for what happens if we want to make changes to that path. You know, like, like okay, so... 15 years originally, like, like the first plan that we put down on paper was like 15 years, we can be fully, fully financially free, fully passive, whatever you want to call it, with full replacement of income for both of us and all this stuff. And it was just too long, you know, it was, it was too long. And, and so we chopped it up, chopped it in half and we're like, okay, now, now what would have to happen for us to go get there in seven, you know, and then so on and so forth. But to do that right, there was tears, there was reconciliation. And there was laughter and that cycle played out twice, at least in one weekend. And it was, <laughs> it, it was the hardest discussions we've ever had. And, and now um, we operate on a level that I think most people, should, I mean, I think most people would be jealous to have in their relationship. So I, I, I think, um, it, it, you know, it, I'm not going to be humble whatsoever about saying that because it was so hard fought. Um, but anyways, yeah, it, it you got to get real and you got to be open and you got to be vulnerable and then honest with yourselves before you can get to that point. It's not easy, but it's so worth it. That, that's a great story. And I think I'm so fortunate and blessed that my spouse supports me so much too, right? She's not as in, in depth in the business from a real estate perspective. She's got her own investments and her own scenarios that she's, uh, you know, that she's moving forward. But I just love stories like that because I think communication is the key to solid relationships. And the, the fact that you guys are able to, to get to that depth. And like you said, you know, from the tears to the laughter, um, you know, that's just, that's just life. And so the fact that you guys are able to have that level of communication and openness, I think is so important. And I think that's what on this journey is so important for people to make sure that they're having those level of conversation with their, with their significant other, because if you're both not on the same page, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And for me personally, you know, I'm just so fortunate that my, my spouse and my wife is, is extremely supportive of, of the endeavors that we're pursuing. And, um, you know, because of that, I think it's actually made me stronger, but we've also had to have in-depth conversations around that saying, Hey, this is kind of what we're doing. This is what we want. And these are our expectations of what we want out of life. And so just, if you're not comfortable having those level of conversations with your spouse, I would really recommend to try and just give it your best and have that conversation because it's going to be more difficult as time goes on. And when you make some of these decisions, it could, you know, end up being more negative than positive. Uh, you know, even if the outcome financially may be a windfall. So make sure you're both on the same page from a, 
communication perspective and then also from a risk tolerance perspective because none of this is worth it if you know you go back into that 80 120 hours a week uh you know working regardless if it's a w2 or a or a entrepreneurial endeavor totally well really well said so so obviously now let's get into so you you, you guys talked about it and now we'll, so you guys are working through madison you are giving all this great advice to your investor base and your group kind of understanding, you know, hey, what, what deals are you looking at? How do you vet them? Yada, yada, yada. Well, then why leave? I mean, so you've got a great job. Jennifer's got a great job. Why not just stay put where you're at? When I was working full time? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a fair question, man. Um, you know, I, I do think that it's not, it, it, it's actually like not only fun to work on this stuff, it's incredibly fulfilling. And, and I do think that there's a level of depth and follow-up that, Everything that I do right now stems from wanting to provide the best possible experience and outcomes for our investors. And I mean, within the context of our business. Uh, and, and so I couldn't necessarily do that anymore. So it really came and I came down to necessity, you know, which is like supposedly like a good indicator is when it's the right time for you to go full time on your side hustle and your business is like, okay, if you become the bottleneck for growth because the growth is so strong that it's about to basically bust out, you know, bust the seams and you become the bottleneck, that's a good sign that it's time. So that's where we were. Um, and now, you know, there, as you know, John, like there's just, just a ton of deals out there. And, and, but, but the problem is they're not all real deals. So how do we go and provide a unique experience that actually helps investors attempt to de-risk some of these opportunities and work with people that are trusted partners, not not Bernie Madoffs, and, and and make sure that they're actually going to get into something and have outcomes that are what will help them achieve their own goals. You know, that's where it came from. It's like, okay, people are like, like we're doing well enough, but what now? Now what I have to do is keep driving and hitting the hitting the gas on healthy growth, because although I don't want to build an empire, we do want to get the business to at least the point where. We can continue reinvesting in it because that's where most of the income that this generated goes to is just reinvested back into the deals for, for the business to vet new sponsors to work with and to, to reinvest back into the business itself. So um, it was just time. It was just time to move on and, and focus on investing in the business and do some pretty special, unique stuff that is yet to see the light of day, which I'm super excited to work on. Yeah, I know we were talking about some of that stuff before, and, and I'm definitely excited to see when that stuff comes out from a LP perspective. Uh, you know, obviously, it always is nice when the due diligence on these deals is done up front, and uh, you just have to click the button, yay or nay. So, so one thing I wanted to get into, but lastly, before we get into the the last couple questions, is around the active versus passive. So, uh, one of the notions that's out there that I'm personally a little bit anti is this passive path to generational wealth. You know, I'm not a big fan of the generational wealth term either, but I just, I get concerned when I see people looking at deals that have, you know, levels of returns that I don't think are, are going to be able to get them there unless they had a huge, large sum of capital already ready to deploy. And so I think people are getting sucked in saying, oh, well, it's better than the stock market. It's, it's better than this. It's better than that. And they're using all these advantages. It's tax advantaged. It's this, it's that. But I talk to investors all the time and they really have no clue how a syndication operates or they're asking, hey, can I 1031 out of this? Or, you know, um, I know one thing that's so critical to you is the educational piece of it. And so that's one thing I'm curious your perspective on the active versus passive. Passive is great, but back to your commentary about the time frame, it's very difficult 
to live a lifestyle to at least cover your means, but not at least live to a lifestyle even above that passively, unless you've got a very large stack of capital. And when I'm saying large, I'm saying a million and a half to $2 million in capital, you know, that kicks off whatever, $150,000, $120,000 a year. So what's your take on, you know, this passive path to financial freedom? Yeah. You know, I love this topic and, you know, I'm excited to talk about it. So there is no money tree that exists, you know, and people keep looking for it. And I don't think and by money tree, I mean a place where you magically have money show up without any effort or capital produced by, from your end, you know? And so what I'm, what I'm saying that because I, I really believe that like passive income is not a myth, despite what some people might say, but you do have to, to, uh, to go earn it and you have to earn it. You're either going to pay for that with some capital or, and it's not cheap, or you're going to somehow have to build a passive income stream through other means. And there's a bunch of ways that people can do that this way, you know, that way. Passive income, just to give people some, some tangible stuff here is like syndications and notes investing within the realm of real estate investing is an, an, an investment that I actually do believe and experience from firsthand experience myself with my own money um, is truly passive post close. For all the sticklers out there and people that like to critique the lack of a, of, a, of punctuation on a sentence for others, what I'm referring to is, yes, of course, it's not passive when you're doing diligence on the deal. Duh. Sorry to be rude, but like it just it, that's the narrative that keeps coming up with people. So I want to make sure I clarify that. No kidding. Yeah, you do diligence on an investment first. Post-close, yes, it is passive. It, it truly is. And so note investing, syndication investing, passive. Rentals, not, not fully passive. They're semi-passive. So, th- so then you get into other non-real estate stuff. Like um, what if you go build like a YouTube channel that's super successful and all that you do is kid videos using like mini scripts and two minute videos where you get ad revenue that come out of it. You know, not fully passive, but there are ways you can do that and eventually build it out. I mean, I'm just being way random from the other side of the income universe just to get people a sense of, of this isn't just real estate we're talking about here. So let's assume people want to be fully passive. I would challenge them to go and ask the question, what do they mean by that? Coming way back to the question that you just asked John prior to this about like, what are your goals? And like, how, have you talked about that with your spouse? Because unfortunately, the single biggest mistake that real estate investors in particular make in the journey of like wanting to get into all this stuff is they just breathe right by the notion that you have to pick the right strategy. <laughs> like, like you really can't just dive in and say, okay, passive income, cool. Multifamily. Okay. Passive income. Cool. Flipper. No, no. Like that's not the same thing. That's, that's a fully active strategy you're about to go pick. So people need to slow down think about the goal and then peg a strategy to it. Because if you're going to go and try to be fully passive in your only sole strategy, which I don't advocate for solely, by the way, and I've never advocated for solely out there. If people have talked to me on a phone call, I'm very upfront about this, is that if you go and say, I'm just dropping all my capital into syndications, that's the only investment vehicle I'm, vehicle I'm never going to use. And I'm going to be sitting on a beach within a matter of years from now, you're going to need over like a million bucks, right? And so like, if you're going to do that, good on you. I'm sure you have a lot of capital to back that up. If you're going to go do a hybrid strategy, and by hybrid, what I mean is like some 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 element of, um, of active work, right? Mixed into it over time, or just building other income streams. I mean, you can literally write a book now pretty easily and put it on the internet, like an ebook or something like that. If it's valuable enough, people will probably pay you real money for that. And so there's all kinds of different ways to build income streams into your life. The strategy I advocate for is just pick some and build those income streams so that you have some wherewithal and a moat around your family and around your household 
and then you're able to move forward with confidence. I firmly believe syndications are a core part of that strategy. So as I mean, as evidenced by just to back it up, our investors that work with us right now, a lot of them uh, will actually be investing in rentals simultaneously, and they will use the income from those rentals along with some of the tax benefits that they get out of the syndications to, to, to benefit each other in terms of offsetting the income. You know, So I, I think just to, just to demystify it for a sec for folks, this is a it's an undertaking, you know, it's an undertaking to go active and passive and figure out the right strategy. It is so darn worth it. And I really think people should give it a look when it comes to figuring out for their own unique circumstances, their own unique strategy amongst these asset classes and amongst these strategies. But that was a long-winded wordy answer with, uh, to your question, John. So I don't even know if I came close to answering it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And I think the the big thing that I take out of that is you're going to have to have some active means regardless of if it's active in real estate, active W2, active in a business, whatever the case is, right? If you're just expecting passive income, you know, that's great, but it, it's just not compounding at the rate and you're not adding to the stack enough to, to build that means that if inflation happens or if an illness happens, or if, you know, if something terrible happens in your life that you need to account for a large capital event, you're not protected kind of back to that financial defense, right? So you've got to be in some semblance of active at all times, you know, and and, and what that active is, is it flipping? Is it W2? Is it owning a business? Whatever the case is, uh, that's something that just is going to need to be there at all times. And I just think just to build on that too, when you talked about looking at different strategies, that's, that's what I'm so big on is having different means, different strategies for income. So right now rentals are at the top of the market, but a lot of real estate is at the top of the market, you know, at least re- relatively speaking, right? Uh, we all think that, that uh, the values are, are, very, are quite high right now. And so I think that's one thing to think about is, you know, yeah, syndications are great. And yeah, I've invested in them. And I think they're a great part of my portfolio. But if I saw a rental that I could buy at 50 cents on the dollar, well, that might be a better investment than investing in a in a syndication if I could flip that deal in a year and and, and win from it. So um, you know, I, I think that's just the thing for me is I look at investments individually and say, hey, you know, is this for, for the strategy I'm looking for to deploy this capital? Is that the return profile that I'm comfortable with? And I oh, think that's just the important thing that people need to look at. And real quick on that one, John, like for listeners that happen to hear that last really helpful comment from John is like, no, and don't just stop there. Like if someone is going to say cool, that rental. Wow. Great, great price. Before they jump into just deciding based upon the financials, they then have to do the second, arguably the most critical like decisioning component variable, which is what is the time impact and how does it factor into my strategy? That is exactly what we're talking about here on the active passive thing. You know, so many times, like I'm literally, um, I'll use, use this example, which I think I referenced on a post the other day on LinkedIn, John, which is like the boomerang investor. The boomerang investor is a term that I use for, I mean, we have one or two investors who literally just invested in a deal with us who fit this profile. They go to bigger pockets. They find out about many different strategies. They read about syndications. They read about actual passive strategies. They then go and they, they, they decide, nah, it's too much. I can get better returns if I go buy a, if I do a burr project, like a, you know, or if I do a flip myself, they go do that. Takes them about a year, 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 year and a half, two years, they come back, they got some bruises, they got some scars, they got some frustration and they got, they got some stories to tell. And then inevitably they, they come back and they realize, wait a sec, my strategy actually had me wanting to become passive. Why did I just spend two years of my life and a bunch of my money, thousands of my dollars 
on doing this thing that wasn't actually in line when ultimately I did want to be passive. And so I just bring that up on as a nice little tangent, because I think what you just said about that rental example, fully support going and buying rentals. If you can get a great deal, knowing that they are semi-passive, you're still going to go fit that in a portfolio. So if you're down to go talk real estate all day and you're as, as educated on it as John, that's, that, that's a good fit. But if you're not, and if you're new to this stuff, don't go lose a bunch of money on it. <laughs> Well, I really appreciate you bringing that up because I think that's so important and I'm just too stubborn. That's my problem, right? If I think I can invest a little bit more time and, uh, and make a little bit better return, I'll definitely go down that path. Uh, you know, it's, it's a time investment won't be so great, but that's, that's why, uh, to your point, why I got out of trying to do flipping is it just, it was a huge time investment. I mean, it was almost like another job in and of itself. So for anybody, I would caution anybody that's looking to do flipping and thinking that that can be passive by any means. It's, uh, it's the farthest thing from it and uh, extremely stressful. So more than happy to share any of those stories offline. You know, thankfully I didn't lose any money on any of those projects, but the returns definitely weren't uh, tremendous as uh, as initially had I had expected. So, well, Spence, I really appreciate the time, but let's wrap up with the uh, the contrarian three pack here. So, um, kind of interested on the response to this one. So, what's the most contrarian investment that you've made before? Oh my gosh, this is probably not going to be as exciting um, for some folks, but I would say. It, it was a stretch for me to go and buy uh, precious metals. Um, I, I had never done it before. And a couple of years ago, I went and bought my first, you know, my, my first uh, pack, I don't know what you want to say, of uh, some gold bullion. And now, you know, I invested a bit more. And so we actually have like some silver and gold bullion now. And I just think it's, you know, but like most people out there um, who actually have done some research on this stuff, like it's not a significant portion of our portfolio, but I really do believe that it's like a helpful hedge and, and it plays a kind of a role in, in a portfolio. But man, it just felt kind of cool to, <laughs> to physically take possession of precious metals. And like, I'd never done any of that stuff. Most of the product work, I mean, all the products I'd ever worked in in my career were like t- software. You couldn't see, touch and hold the thing, right? So I'm used to that. In this case, I was like sitting there holding the coin and I'm like, wow, this is, makes me feel kind of like a kind of like a pirate finding a treasure chest. <laughs> kind of cool kind of novel but yeah that's got to be one of them <laughs> well i can't get the story out of my head when you said uh jennifer was giving you such a hard time about being a pirate when uh when you guys were looking <laughs> to make the investment <laughs> I, I still just can't forget that one that one was pretty funny so uh, um, very very earned yeah so <laughs> well i appreciate you sharing that so uh i know we talked about your family a little bit but what's your what's your favorite activity to do with friends and family outside of business yeah you know i gotta think that I really, this sounds so, this sounds so mundane, man. Um, but I got to say that like going to the park with my kids, like we haven't done that in a long time. And like, you know, just because everything's closed still. And uh, I really miss that. I mean, I, my kids miss it. They're asking me about it. you know. So, so that, that's gotta be it. That or going back to like Legoland with our boys. So it's been closed for a while. So hopefully we can go do that really fun stuff. For those of you guys that don't have kids, young kids, you're probably going, ah, that sounds boring. And I don't really care <laughs> but, but for me. Um, I love being able to spend time with the family and do that fun stuff. We did just go back to the Oakland Zoo, which was open on a, on a restricted basis. And that was so much fun. Like we've been there a thousand times already, but it was like, oh my gosh, we get to go back into the real world now. So yeah, family time, just getting out to the park is, is a blast. It's easy and it's fun. And it's a nice sunny day. Yeah, you got everything you need. 
Yeah, no, we were a little bit more fortunate out here in North Carolina. Things are a little bit more open. And so we've been able to to make it out a little bit to parks. And we actually went camping this weekend. So that was, that was super fun. First time taking the girls and right on the lake and just beautiful scenery. Weather was perfect and just such an experience. The first thing my oldest daughter said to, to her teacher when she got to school is we went camping this weekend. So it's just so awesome mm-hmm. and fun to share those experiences with, with, with your spouse and your children. And, you know, those are the things that I live for as well. So I appreciate you sharing that. So what, what offers you the most fulfillment in life? Gosh, I mean, in a, beyond family, which has got to be the number one thing is like hearing, you know, watching your kids grow and, and, and thrive. But, but I think uh, hearing feedback from people that you have made a positive impact on. And for me, that means in like typically in the professional world, you know, like I, even if it's not someone like I managed directly, because I, I, over time I managed and hired, you know, hundreds of people I mean, across many companies. I'm like, getting a note back from someone who like I wrote a letter of recommendation from, this is a real story. I like, I, I, I wrote this letter of recommendation for one guy a few years ago to get into law school. And he not only is he on that track, but he's just like kicking butt and we stay in touch, you know, like, so he, he multiplied that by dozens of other folks. And like, I, I literally have sitting right here in front of me, like some thank you notes from people that, that, you know, on the, on the days that are, that are tougher, I like look at him and I just, I really, I really cherish that stuff um, because you don't always hit the mark when you're interacting with people, you know, but in the times that you do, um, and, and they, they're, it was profound enough to apparently have them feel confident thanking you, um, because you made a lasting impact on them. That is easily the most fulfilling. <laughs> that That's awesome. And I really appreciate you sharing that and, um, you know, not to be too sappy, but I mean, I'm, I'm super fortunate and, and happy that we were able to cross paths ourselves. And obviously, you know, from just I, I do always take something out of the conversation every time we speak. So I am very thankful uh, to have you in my life as well. And, and you've made a positive impact. So, well, Spence, this has been beyond outstanding. I know the listeners are going to get a lot out of this episode. So what's the best way that they can get in touch with you out there? Yeah, and the feelings are very mutual, John. I really appreciate our conversations every single time. And so I think people can reach me in two ways. Um, we have a website at madisoninvesting.com. Um, of course, we have a, an email list that's at this point, we're only accepting accredited investors to join, but please do fill out that form. It's very brief and then I'll reach out. I onboard 100% of our um, of the investors in our passive investing program. And there's no cost associated with that. It just means you got to have a conversation with me. So I guess that's that might be a steep cost to some people, but I promise I won't bite. Um, and then LinkedIn. I'm very active on a daily basis on LinkedIn um, and just putting out some of my rantings to the internet. But hopefully some of that stuff people tell me is pretty valuable. So um, one of those two ways. I would recommend any of my listeners to go seek him out, uh, you know, worst case, at least on LinkedIn, because uh, there's a lot of levity and comedy that he puts out there, calling out some of the mundane and uh, just daily happenings in our lives. So, well, well, Spence, well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the time. Until next time, live fulfilled. Thank you for listening to Contrarian Cashflow. I would greatly appreciate it if you left an honest review, hit subscribe so you never miss an episode, and share with someone you feel would find value. Until next time, think different, earn different, live fulfilled.